Today marks the end of the COVID health emergency, but what about access to COVID tests or vaccines? They're still being provided by the federal government, so they're free of charge still to, to most Americans. But it's not clear how long they'll remain free. That is next on WGLT's Sound Ideas. Good afternoon, I'm John Norton. Also on today's show, a Bloomington Normal woman addresses inequality in clean energy. Low-income and minority populations tend to be disproportionately affected. And scammers are coming after nutrition benefits through a process called skimming. She's like, no, it just keeps on saying you have this much, your balance is 12 cents. I'm like, I don't have 12 cents. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I know I have money in there, but it's not 12 cents. Those stories follow a Bloomington Normal News update, which is just ahead. This is WGLT Sound Ideas on 89.1 FM and WGLT.org, part of the NPR network. Support for WGLT comes from Bloomington Normal Audiology. Hear My Story continues with local patient Bill McKay. Folks that had never had a, a set of hearing aids were always concerned. All of a sudden, oh, you've got, well, yes, I, I wear them too. And, and it's really is helpful. And these things are really kind of nice. Bill's full story can be found at bnaudiology.com. From the campus of Illinois State University in Normal, this is WGLT's news magazine, Sound Ideas. Good afternoon, I'm John Norton. Today is the last day the U.S. will be in a public health emergency for COVID-19. COVID cases have not stopped, but they have dropped considerably. And for the first time since the start of the pandemic, all 102 Illinois counties have low community spread. We're going to start Sound Ideas today with an edition of Sound Health. McLean County Health Department Administrator Jessica McKnight tells WGLT's Eric Stock what the end of the public emergency means and how it might impact vaccinations and testing. Really what it means is just that, is the declaration, the public health emergency declaration will be expiring, not renewed. And really, you know, most tools that we have available to us, vaccines, testing, treatment, nothing will change with that. On May 12th, we'll wake up and things will still be the same. To what extent does this impact McLean County Health Department operations with regards to the pandemic? So, you know, in the last year or so, our pandemic response has definitely pulled back a little bit. Uh, we are still monitoring cases, monitoring trends of hospitalizations. Um, so really nothing changes on May 12th with that expiration for us in terms of how we're handling COVID-19. The concern that some in the health community have raised with the end of the COVID emergency, that access to COVID tests and vaccines could be limited. You had indicated that that won't be the case in McLean County, I imagine. But if they are still available, that they will no longer be free of charge. The COVID rapid test reimbursements for Medicare, for example, are ending. Any concern that uh, the public should have about availability of vaccines or COVID tests themselves? Um, no concern immediately for uh, availability or access to vaccines, testing, treatment, uh, things like vaccines, they're still being provided by the federal government, so they're free of charge still to, to most Americans. And even after those are um, no longer, if, if and when we get to the point of cost sharing, still being a recommended vaccine, they will likely be uh, available to individuals. So Medicaid still covering that, most insurance is still covering that. Um, so again, vaccines, testing, treatment, all of that should still be available, just integrated into our normal 
healthcare system as we see it for other illnesses. And you anticipate it'll still be free? So vaccines, uh, again, right now for the immediate future, those vaccines are still being provided by the federal government if and when they are commercialized. Then, again, those will be treated like other vaccines. So there are programs available for the uninsured, the underinsured to provide free access to vaccines. And those who have insurance, um, again, the coverage would be similar to other recommended vaccines. So it would be covered for a large majority of the population. Exactly. Kind of Most Americans like. would not see any change with the expiration of the public health emergency. And what about the COVID tests themselves? You can just drop by the pharmacy and pick up a pack and you're good to go. Does that change? So, you know, in recent times, there have been um, the antigen, the at-home tests have been covered by insurances, and that may change. So again, there may be cost sharing for over-the-counter antigen tests, but there should still be availability of testing. So the lab testing, the PCR testing that we're familiar with, if you have symptoms, if you have been exposed to COVID-19, checking with pharmacies like Walgreens and CVS to um, find out about access to those, those should still remain covered or free for the immediate time being. And as we continue on Sound Ideas with Jessica McKnight, the McLean County Health Department Administrator, how should we think about COVID now and the risks for infection three and a half years after the start of the pandemic? So things definitely look different in terms of what we know about the, vi the virus that causes COVID-19 and, again, the tools that we have available to us. So vaccines, testing, treatment, all things that three years ago we didn't know about or have access to. So while we still do see um, individuals become infected with and have COVID, we have testing, we have treatments, and we also have vaccines. So recommending that people stay up to date on their vaccines to help reduce the likelihood of severe infection. The CDC will no longer have access to some of the surveillance data to assess COVID risk. While it's a much different landscape now than it was, will we be able to proactively detect when a new wave will be coming? That is, you know, a great question. And looking at public health and what we do for other reportable conditions. So COVID-19, after even the public health emergency expires, will still in Illinois remain a reportable condition. So we will still get information about positive cases that are reported from labs and providers. And so we will still, again, continue to monitor that virus and it's um, how it's spreading in our community. So we monitor other illnesses. And so we will do the same with COVID. And if we're seeing small pockets outbreaks, we will still have access to that also through the wastewater surveillance program showing us um, the virus and its prevalence in the community. So again, we may have the, the data may look a little different that COVID that uh, CDC has access to, but we will still have access to what's happening in the community. I imagine you might be relying on that more than the raw testing numbers, simply because testing is greatly diminished from what it was. And a lot of people are doing the at-home tests and they're not perhaps getting the official diagnosis, if you will. Yeah. And test positivity, which was the you know percentage of positive tests of the 
overall number of tests being completed, that was a, a data set that early on we were looking at. And like you mentioned, the the change in testing, either individuals maybe not accessing testing or over-the-counter testing at home, that has changed where um, we're looking again at disease severity versus test positivity as metrics that are of concern for us and that we're watching. So if we're seeing an increase in hospitalizations for COVID or COVID-like illness, that would be a data set that we would be monitoring more than test positivity. And now that we are through the fog of this pandemic, are we as Americans better prepared to anticipate the next pandemic that they're saying is going to come at some point uh, in, in one form or another and what could be done at the local level to be better prepared for that? So, you know, you you always prepare. And even while we've been going through the COVID-19 response, at least at McLean County Health Department, we've been assessing our response and looking at ways that we can improve. So continuing our partnerships that we have made or enhanced during the the pandemic, um, also looking at ways that COVID was different than H1N1. So mass vaccination and um the way that we were able to deliver vaccines to the public was definitely different. So there's always something to learn. But I think one of the the biggest things that we learn is is a plan is a plan. And you can't have a perfect plan for the response. You, You do your best, you continue to assess, and then you make adjustments based on what you're learning. That was McLean County Health Department Administrator Jessica McKnight with WGLT's Eric Stock. Nearly 37,000 Illinoisans have died of COVID-19 since the start of the pandemic. That includes more than 400 people here in McLean County. Now that the COVID health emergency is expiring, more than 100,000 Illinoisans could lose Medicaid coverage if they don't verify their income status with the state by June 1st. Support for WGLT health coverage comes from Carl Health. You can count on Carl as your partner in healthcare. Information at carl.org. The arts and humanities became a vital outlet for many who struggled with isolation during the pandemic. Tomorrow on Sound Ideas, hear how some cultural groups became community anchors during such a trying time. And now, how do they sustain post-COVID? Phones? Check. Computers? Check. Watches? Check. Financial dominance? Yeah, maybe. Banking built into your iPhone. Next time on Marketplace. Listen this afternoon at 530 on WGLT 89.1 FM and WGLT.org. Sound Ideas is WGLT's news magazine. Thanks for listening. I'm John Norton. The clean energy revolution threatens to expose a new strain of inequality. Between those who can afford zero emissions electric vehicles and solar and wind energy and those who cannot. The state's Climate and Equitable Jobs Act passed in 2021 hoped to bridge that gap. One part of that expansive law called for a creation of the Clean Energy Jobs and Justice Fund. That's a nonprofit green bank providing loans and other assistance for renewable energy projects that's being done by minority-owned businesses or in low-income and disadvantaged communities. The governor is now appointing members of the board overseeing that clean energy fund, including Maimuna Lee from Bloomington Normal. Lee moved here from California about 15 
15 years ago. She works at Country Financial and volunteers with the Ecology Action Center in Normal. In this interview with WGLT's Ryan Denham, Lee says she's excited to scale up her environmental justice work. It's a basic human principle from my perspective. We all deserve clean water. We all deserve clean air. And we also know that um, low-income and minority populations tend to be disproportionately affected. So putting more focus on making sure that those populations are also benefiting, that are also being taken care of, is, in my opinion, a human right. But what are you expecting to actually be doing as a board member? Each board member will represent different parts of the community of the state of Illinois. So when you think of the neighborhood, air quotes, as being the whole state, then I'm representing the neighborhood of central Illinois. And from the perspective of looking at those applications and making sure that we are surfacing people who are from central Illinois, that we are looking at where things in central Illinois should be you know, be brought to bear to benefit people that live here, people who might be living near train tracks, people who might be living near truck stations, you know, where there might be a lot of even auto pollution going on. That would be my role. So I would be looking to make sure that those people get an opportunity, that as we're looking at those applications, that we're trying to balance it out. So let's talk about solar energy. You know, even here in Bloomington Normal, we've seen a lot of homeowners and business owners put up solar panels on their roofs in, in recent years. Uh, my sense is that that is kind of expensive to do, even if you're going to see uh, cost savings in the long run on your energy bill. Do you see any role for this board that you're going to be on in, in making solar even more accessible to different types of communities in, in central Illinois? I would love to see that happen. It is one of those things where photovoltaic or solar power is something that is very clean and can be low impact. So whereas sometimes your wind turbines, when you oil them, they, they you know lubricate them, they can sometimes flip off that lubricant onto, say, a farmer's field, and then you kind of pollute the, the ground below. That solar is something that we should figure out. Can we bring down the cost? Can we work with landlords, for example, who have rentals that when they go to replace those roofs, maybe that's how we are able to get that wrapped in? Can we, you know, what can we do to foster lower cost, you know, regional production of solar panels versus a lot of the importing that we see happen. So I'd very much want to see more equity there. What about electric vehicles? You know, Bloomington Normal is is very much invested in electric vehicles because of, of Rivian. What is your sense of how accessible electric vehicles are to, you know, even low and middle income Illinoisans at, at this moment? And is there any role for you and this board in, in, in improving that? So that's interesting because I have an electric vehicle. And one of the key elements to an electric vehicle is generally having the ability to charge your vehicle at night. So while you may be able to produce a relatively low-cost electric vehicle, the place where the board might be able to lean in is trying to drive innovation, drive more adoption of provision of charging stations 
in more communal housing, not single family homes, right? So in a single family home, of course, you can put your car in the garage. When you live in a townhouse or you live in an apartment, that's not so easy. And, you know, when I look around, I think that is a place where we could try to drive improvement. Tell me about your volunteer work with the Ecology Action Center. What kinds of things have you done with them? Oh, fun things. So we held a, a different workshops for residents of public housing and low-income housing, people who are getting Section 8 vouchers, and doing all sorts of things with the children and showing them, you know, things like the little the bicycle that you can use to power the, the lights and, you know, fun things like putting just even uh, covers over the sockets to keep the draft down. And it felt nice because you're not only putting money back into their pockets, which they need for food, you're also saving the environment. So it's like a twofer. You've gone through all these hoops to be appointed to this particular board. Why, why is this issue, an environmental justice issue, so important to you? This is uh, an extension of the work I've done on the West Coast. I've always believed that we should be the best stewards of our given earth, the place where we live. There is no place else to go. So it is all of our duties to make sure that it's nice and clean, as clean as we can keep it, so that something will be left for our, our children. It's simple. Your grandchildren will still need clean water. It's just as simple as that. Was there a particular moment or experience that you had that was uh, sort of awakening for you on the importance of, of the environment and, and our role in it? Probably the brownfields of West Oakland. So I did a lot of work there a long time ago as an AmeriCorps VISTA volunteer. And I saw things in those brownfields that should never happen. And they... Those types of things tend to happen. Superfund sites tend to happen in low-income communities. And it's just, it's a human rights issue. It's an injustice, which is why I liked the Justice Board, because in America, I feel like that's something that is a good ideal, that we should strive for justice. That is Maimuna Lee from Bloomington Normal, who the governor just appointed to the state's new Clean Energy Jobs and Justice Fund. Lee spoke with WGLT's Ryan Denham. Thanks for listening. This is WGLT Sound Ideas. Across the United States, low-income people who rely on money from the federal government to help buy food have been caught up in a skimming spree. They often don't realize that until they're at the grocery store, swipe their cards to pay, and find their money has vanished. There's a push in Illinois to replace stolen funds, but the Pritzker administration isn't fully on board. And people who lost hundreds, and in some cases thousands of dollars, are caught in the middle. Kristen Shores from Chicago Public Media brings us this story. After volunteering at a food pantry last spring, Carolina Torres stopped by the store to buy a few items for dinner for her family. Tortillas, chorizo, eggs, and avocados. Then the cashier tried to ring up the groceries with Torres's link card that she thought was loaded with SNAP benefits from the federal government. They used to be called food stamps. She was charging, she's putting them in the bag, and she's putting them in the bag, and then, you know, I'm just going to pay. And that's when she's like, the first time, okay, they didn't go through. They tried her card four times. The cashier was being nice, Torres says. 
She's a frequent customer. She's like, no, it just keeps on saying you have this much, your balance is 12 cents. I'm like, I don't have 12 cents. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I know I have money in there, but it's not 12 cents. Torres thought she had more than $3,000 in SNAP benefits on her card. The money is meant to help low-income families buy food. There's a line of customers behind Torres, and people start to snicker as she's trying to absorb what's happening. I was confused, and, you know, after I turned around and I saw the line, I was embarrassed because, you know, I was obviously, you know, holding up the line, and, you know, I could hear the people in the back saying, oh, oh, she don't even know how much money she has. Torres left the store. She discovered that while she had been volunteering at the food pantry earlier that day, someone allegedly spent nearly all of her SNAP benefits. They were used at a small corner store Torres says she's never been to, about four miles from her home. She wound up being part of a nationwide skimming spree that started to spike last year. The scope isn't fully known, but the federal government is reimbursing benefits stolen since October. Some states are going back even further, replenishing accounts from January through September of last year. But Illinois advocates and lawmakers say state government has not agreed to this. That's led to a proposed law that would require it. Carrie Chapman with Legal Counsel for Health Justice pushed for the legislation. Just like I expect to not be charged for, you know, the the things that the person who skimmed my credit card at the gas station uh, has put on my credit card. It's equally important for or probably more important for low income folks to be able to be made hold for the benefits that they lost. The Illinois Department of Human Services oversees SNAP benefits and has told lawmakers and legal advocates that it would be too expensive to reimburse stolen funds. Yet the agency apparently hasn't shown the math. Advocates want $5 million in the state budget to cover skimming theft. That's around how much California paid out during the same time frame. And California has more SNAP recipients than Illinois. The proposed Illinois bill has since been gutted. The reimbursement part taken out. DHS declined an interview. In a statement, a spokeswoman said the department is neutral on the bill and tracks skimming that's reported. Trey Daly is with Legal Aid Chicago, which is representing more than 30 people whose benefits have been allegedly stolen. We've been in contact with many law enforcement um, departments, the city of Chicago, Skokie, um, some others. They've given up, it appears. The feedback he's received? SNAP is a federal program, so the feds need to deal with the alleged theft. And despite our requests for information, the Department of Human Services has disclosed no investigation efforts that we're aware of. It's upsetting that nobody's trying to figure out, apparently, what went wrong or who, who are the bad actors. Torres, the mother of three from the West Side, whose more than $3,000 in benefits were allegedly stolen, is one of Legal Aid Chicago's clients. She says she accumulated so much money because she had been saving her benefits so she could still feed her family in case her husband lost his part-time job. She wasn't working. She hopes the state makes her whole. I want my money back because I didn't do this. This is a crime that was done against me. I'm a victim. She's still wary of another theft when she goes to the store. That was Kristen Shores from Chicago Public Media reporting. And that's Sound Ideas today. WGLT's news magazine is made possible in part by Bloomington Normal Audiology. I'm John Norton. Story help today from WGLT's Eric Stock and Ryan Denham. Also from IPR's Kristen Schorsch. Samantha Hill, as usual, produced Sound Ideas today. This is 89.1 FM, WGLT and WGLT.org, part of the NPR network.